grab your copy of Scripture and turn to Luke chapter 6. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, uh, we would love for you to grab one of the Bibles that should be in front of you as we study God's Word together, and you can turn to page 862. Our study through Luke's Gospel continues on this morning as we finally come to a sermon of Jesus Christ after hearing Luke's account of Jesus having preached and seeing the effects of Jesus preaching It's genuinely the first time in this gospel we get to see in an extended manner the content of Jesus' preaching as we want to look at this morning, verses 12 through 26 of Luke chapter 6. So let me go ahead and read our text for us, and I want to pray briefly for God to bless our study of his word, and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. In these days... Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who is called the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. The great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, For you shall mourn and weep, and woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did so also to the false prophets. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we come into your presence now to hear from you, to be given the life that your word gives unto us as it preaches the good news of Jesus Christ unto us. Lord, so we come not this morning to hear words of wisdom. We come not this morning to hear words of human eloquence. But we come this morning asking for a demonstration of your spirit. The spirit of truth, the spirit of power that would move among us to conform us to the image of Christ, to work faith and repentance within each one of our hearts. So help us to hear this morning with eagerness and gladness as you speak to us. Help me to preach as I ought. 
faithfully, clearly and boldly as a dying man unto dying people. And Lord, let us all hear from you as though this sermon might be our last. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. About ten years ago, an author named Gretchen Rubin was on the subway, and she had something of an existential crisis there as she was traveling to her work in the morning, as she thought suddenly to herself, what do I want out of my life? And the question that came suddenly was also suddenly answered by a simple statement, I want to be happy. But for Mrs. Rubin, she realized that she had never thought before about what it looks like to be happy, or maybe more specifically, how to actually pursue happiness. And so she began a 12-month project of how to be happy, at least as she understands happiness. And it was eventually published as an instant New York Times best-selling title, The Happiness Project, subtitled, or why I spent a year trying to sing in the morning, clean my closets, fight right, read Aristotle, and generally have more fun. And the book has sold millions of copies, translated into over 30 languages, had even the distinction of being an answer on Jeopardy a few years ago, and has created a movement of millions of people around the world eager to pursue happiness. And it's a pursuit many of us may remember that is even enshrined in our Declaration of Independence as the United States of America. As the author said, there are three unalienable rights due to all men and women, boys and girls. And do you remember what they are? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the question as we come to God's word this morning and Christ is going to speak to us is, how does Jesus understand happiness? If you were to ask Jesus, what does the good life look like? What would he say? And those are questions he's going to answer. And so even kids, I hope you pay attention this morning. Maybe you can talk about it over lunch with your family, your parents or grandparents. What does Jesus say is true about happiness? Students, it may be even a good opportunity for you to kind of examine uh, your heart. What do you value most? Because as Jesus is talking about the good life, as he's talking about true happiness in his kingdom, he therefore is going to tell us what we ought to value as his disciples and as his followers. So as I said a few minutes ago, what we've seen throughout Luke's gospel up until this point is Luke has been keen to paint a picture of Jesus as an astonishing preacher. Over and over we find him coming into synagogues, teaching along the way, people who are interested, and he's very much a celebrity preacher at this moment in his ministry. We'll even see it again in our text today attracting crowds from all over the region, but we've yet to actually been able to give specific looks into what his sermon sounded like. But today, we finally get a look into the content of Jesus' preaching. So if you happen to have one of those red-letter Bibles in front of you and you look down at our text, what you would find is really from verse 20 through the end of the chapter, it's all in red letters. For it's this extended sermon of Jesus Christ that we'll get to look at over the next few weeks. And we're really only going to look at the first two sections of his sermon on the plane today. And it's a sermon, or sections of the sermon, that give us this main theme. Live in light of Christ's coming kingdom. And we're going to think about that more as we move on through the text. But it's a simple yet significant exhortation to live now in light of life then. 
And to help us move through uh, this section, I first want us to see in verses 12 through 19, we want to hear Christ's call as he brings finally 12 disciples into his small group ministry to set them unto being apostles that they may extend his kingdom when he ascends to heaven. So we want to hear Christ's call. Secondly, as we move into the sermon, we want to know Christ's blessing. And then thirdly, we want to heed Christ's warning is where we'll end in our text today. But first of all, we want to know Christ's call. We want to hear it. So look again at what Luke tells us is happening in verse 12 of chapter 6. We're told that in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. You may have noticed already in Luke's gospel how devoted Jesus was to prayer. We've seen it emphasized in chapter 4. We've seen it emphasized in chapter 5. We now see it emphasized once again in chapter 6. And what Luke tells us is not only... Jesus is devoted to prayer each and every day, communing with his God in secret and quiet, often early in the morning. But also what we find out in the Gospels is before major events, before significant decisions, Jesus would spend extended hours, even on this occasion, praying all night long before that major event was going to happen or that decision was going to be made. And I wonder what you tend to do when you have a major event or decision on the horizon in your life. Do you you find increasingly, as the Spirit is poured out into your heart and Christ conforms you to His image, that more and more, with each passing year, in light of those major events and decisions, that you find yourself praying unto God for guidance, for wisdom, for direction? You know, I was even freshly convicted this week studying this text, because when major things come into our life and even into this church, I try to be diligent, to pray, but I've never prayed all night for a decision to come, or an event that is near. And surely it's, of course, no wrong correlation or challenge and conviction for us to make if the sinless Son of God needed to pray all night before a decision, so too might we need earnest hours to plead fervently before God that He might help us as we want to serve Him. So what's the significant decision that Jesus is about ready to make? Well, look again at verse 13. The day has come, And he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, sent ones, men commissioned uniquely for the building and creation of the new covenant community of God. So kids, students, think about the Old Testament for a second and a number. Do you remember where the number twelve shows up in the Old Testament? A particular group, if you will, that's marked off by the number twelve. Remember the twelve tribes of Israel? Twelve sons that God built this old covenant community around. And so the number here is very important because it's no accident that Jesus chooses twelve. He doesn't choose eleven. He doesn't choose thirteen. He doesn't even choose seven. He chooses twelve, signaling for us, if you understand how Scripture fits together, that he's recreating the covenant people of God around him. He's the fulfillment of the old covenant people of Israel. He is the true Son of God, the true Israel to come, and He's the one that is going to now build a new covenant nation around His person and work. And I wonder if you know anything about these 12 disciples. If you just look through the list, it's always a fun Bible trivia question. What are the 12 disciples that Jesus called unto Himself? Well, we know four of them are fishermen. We know one of them, Matthew, is a tax collector, hated and despised by his culture. 
We know this man, Simon the Zealot, was likely a radical and violent political partisan in that culture and time. And then we know basically nothing else about the rest of them, aside from a few events that they show up in the Gospel of Luke. And it's quite striking, isn't it? As the King of kings and the Lord of lords has come, and he's called unto himself 12 men to build his church, they're quite ordinary. None of them are trained in Scripture. None of them are especially powerful preachers. None of them would have had an occupation at the time that would have lent itself to unique influence and ability to stir up followers for Jesus. And I hope that's an encouragement to you, how from the beginning of his ministry... Christ was about the business of calling ordinary people by his extraordinary grace into his extraordinary kingdom to do amazing work through them. So you might even be in here this morning and feel as though you're left behind by the world, often something of an outcast or a misfit. Well, be encouraged from the 12. They were all outcasts and misfits and wouldn't have belonged in most people's conception of the king's kingdom. But he's all about calling all people to himself from all backgrounds, all places, all tribes that he might create a new community and kingdom for his glory. So then just scan your eyes through verse 17 through 19. You'll see something of the setting for the sermon that we're getting ready to give attention to. You'll see that Jesus, once again, as popularity is growing, crowds are coming, we're told, from all over Judea, Jerusalem, as far as Tyre and Sidon which means in all likelihood someone would have come to Jesus maybe on this mountainside having walked 120 miles to come see this astonishing teacher with powerful authority. 120 miles by foot through winding roads and maybe even difficulty and danger, all to hear Jesus. Because look at what Luke tells us they were coming for in verse 18. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. They came to hear and be healed But as Jesus is prone to do in his ministry, what we find now is that he wants to center their attention on hearing. What he has to tell them. uh, What they need to know. So these 12 disciples have heard Christ's call and now Jesus is after them knowing his blessing. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, uh, you may know that chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. In some ways, it's the most famous sermon that Jesus ever uttered. Even people around the world who aren't Christians can quote famous things from that sermon. And people have often wondered in light of Luke chapter 6, what's the relationship between this sermon on the plain and that sermon on the mount? Because they seem often strikingly similar. Is it the same sermon that Luke has just condensed down in Cliff Notes form? If so, then why does he call it the sermon on the plain? I think it's best for us to understand it as Jesus, as traveling teachers often do, they have particular messages they like to repeat in other places. And so Jesus is using this message to once again preach the good news, to once again talk about life in his kingdom. And he's going to do it in something of a condensed manner in Luke's account. And I want you to notice who the original audience was for this sermon. Look again at verse 20. So we set the appropriate context. And Jesus lifted up his eyes... On his disciples. That means originally these words were given in the hearing of enormous crowds and multitudes. He looks specifically upon 12 men that they might know this truth. Because as we move through this sermon in the coming weeks, it's going to be, I hope, quite clear 
for us what Jesus is doing in this sermon for those 12 men. And two simple words just to kind of get you going into understanding this sermon. One, it's a sermon about preparation. You may know that seminary students often early on in their studies, they'll read some book on pastoral ministry that talks about the nature, characteristics of what it looks like to be a faithful pastor, nature and characteristics of faithful gospel ministry. And Jesus here is setting out a blueprint for these men about what it means to be apostles. What things are going to be true about them. So in subsequent weeks, we'll see that their ministry is to center on love that their ministry is to center on mercy, that they're to be rooted in the truth, that they're to live lives of imminent, vital holiness. But it's also a sermon about expectation, not just expectation of what kind of ministry Jesus means for them to have, but what he expects of them in the ministry, how they act, how they focus, and even as we're getting ready to see where they ought to lie their faith and their trust. It's meant to prepare them for God's expectations, Christ's expectations in their coming ministry. Our sixth child, Boston, is now almost three months old. And I had a little bit of an unusually busy Friday, and so when I when Emily put him to bed on Thursday night, I didn't see him again until Saturday morning. And so Yesterday, when Boston was in bed and Emily was feeding him, eventually he kind of seemed satisfied. And so I said something to him like, hey, Boston. And you just saw his eyes go from being somewhat sleepy to just open up immediately. Daddy's there. I haven't seen him in a long time. And it was a look of eager expectancy. It was quite striking and a wonderful thing for a father to see. And I, I think about that in light of verse 20. Jesus looks on the disciples. Don't you wish you know what kind of a look it was? Was it a look of of grace and compassion, knowing that he's called these men to himself that don't deserve to be disciples? Was it a look of purpose and intent, knowing what he's about to commission them to do? We don't know what the look was all about, but we know what the sermon was all about as it begins with blessings. Notice the end of verse 20. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So I wanted you to focus on that first word. It's the first word that shows up in eight of Matthew's Beatitudes. We only get four of them here, this word blessed. It's a difficult word, I think, for us to even use in this translation, for in our context and culture, the thing that gets the most blessings are sneezes. So it may not be the best word for us to consider the full force of this Greek word, makarios. Some people have preferred the translation of favor. Favored are you, but I think in our culture and context, that means something more like fortunate or lucky, which we know is not true in God's economy of providence. Some people have preferred the translation of happy are you, and that's true, but even I think in our world today that happiness doesn't have the full weight and gravity that the Bible speaks of happiness in. So another word that I might have you think of this morning as we walk through these four Beatitudes that is true to the original word is the word congratulations. This is what Jesus is saying in these four Beatitudes. Congratulations, you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew's gospel kind of spiritualizes Jesus' sayings in that sermon where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke has it here, just blessed are the poor, speaking specifically of 
economic status and being. And does Jesus mean that anyone who's in poverty throughout the ages then has entrance into the kingdom? Well, we know that surely isn't right, because you only come into the kingdom by faith. Maybe it helps to know that in this context, in the early Jewish culture, that poverty did have religious undertones to it, because it was the poor who most uniquely relied upon God's provision, because they had nothing. So they were in some ways, by virtue of their being and status, uniquely reliant upon God. You'll see the second beatitude. Blessed are you, congratulations are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And again, he's not saying that just because you're hungry, you'll be satisfied, but it is something about the experience of hunger that ordinarily in the life of the hungry increases cries to God for provision a stronger clinging to Christ. And so when Jesus comes in with his good news, with his gospel, he tends to turn everything upside down, doesn't he? And even what you see here is he's accenting states of being that are empty. Then when the gospel comes to you and you come to Jesus Christ in faith, what does he tend to do? Empty you of everything that you are in order that he might fill you up with everything that he is. He tends to deconstruct your soul in order that he might reconstruct you after his own image. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Look at thirdly in verse 21 at the end. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. It's a wonderful study you might do. You could kind of pull it up on your computer screen later this week and work through the biblical truths about God's care for the weeping and the hurting. You might find wonderful texts like Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Or even as you get to the end of the Bible, what do you find? John gets this vision in Revelation 21. He hears these mighty words of the new kingdom to come. And it's a kingdom, it's a new heavens and a new earth where every tear is going to be wiped away. He hears the good news that there will be no more mourning. So maybe you're in here this morning and you're going through a season of weeping. Suffering, affliction, or hurt. And maybe you're doing so as a person who's lonely. Know that Christ cares for you. That even now, he's saying, blessed are those who weep now. Congratulations for your weeping. For you will one day laugh in joy and gladness for all eternity. If you come to me. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Look at the last beatitude in verse 22 through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Rejoice in the day and leap for joy, he says, for great is your reward in heaven. If you know anything about the story of these 12 disciples, they were poor, they were hungry, they often wept, and oh, how they were persecuted. You see how Jesus is preparing them for their ministry as apostles? For those times in which the poverty would come, those times when the hunger pains would arrive, those times when they would weep, those times when they would be beaten, bruised, and bloodied on account of Jesus Christ, they could think back to his words of comfort, that they are blessed, for they belong to him. They're citizens in his kingdom, a kingdom that has now arrived with his incarnation, but that will one day fully come when he returns a second time. 
blessings he gives to his disciples. We want to know them, know Christ's blessings, but we also want to heed Christ's warnings. Because students, notice as we read in just a second, verses 24, 25, and 26, how Jesus now gives a parallel curse to every one of the blessings. And if you think of this word woe, it could mean something like cursed are you, but it's more empathetic and pastoral in its tone. It's something to the effect of how miserable are they? Miserable why? Notice verse 24 through 25. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Do you see how each blessing gets a corresponding curse? You see how Jesus in his kingdom, he's turning everything upside down. Everything that the world desires, Jesus now says we ought to in some way despise. He's cast down the desires and the values of the world, hasn't he? Who gets the blessing? The poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the hated. Who gets the curses? The rich, the satisfied, the happy, and the popular. He's going to turn it everything upside down. For this original audience, they're sitting on that first century plain near that mountain. Surely they would have heard these words and been astonished by the nature of the king of kings' kingdom. For their reading of the Old Testament was one in which the king is going to come and usher in a life of triumph. Following his train of royalty unto power and prestige. And Jesus is saying, no, it's actually going to be the exact opposite. And does his life not also exemplify that? It's the cross first, then the crown. He's going to call us into his kingdom to walk in such a way that we take up our cross and follow him and it's going to bring pain, it's going to bring persecution, it's going to bring suffering and difficulty because the triumph we experience in part now, but we don't know in full till then. So if you want to understand the fullness of what Jesus is doing here, match the blessing to the curse in these sections. What he's saying is, blessed are the poor, for you will receive an eternal inheritance. You may be poor now, but you get the riches of God for all eternity. But you may be rich now, yet you will get nothing but poverty for an everlasting age. You may be hungry now, but you'll be satisfied at the king's table in the new heavens and the new earth. But those of you who are satisfied now, you only get the punishment of hunger pains for all eternity. Those of you who are weeping now in Christ, you will leap for joy and gladness forever. But those of you who are satisfied in, in this world, in this life, you will find the curse of God's wrath falling upon you for all eternity. When you are reviled on the account of the Son of Man, it's okay. For by faith you will be welcomed into God's family forever. When the world finds you popular and you despise the Lord Jesus Christ, know that this is the only blip of your popularity for all eternity. For he will cast you out, and his torment will fall upon you forever. So do you see the fullness of what Jesus is doing here? He's not reinventing the wheel. He's saying this is how it was always meant to be. The cross first and the crown second. 
And as his followers and as citizens of his kingdom, you're meant to live now in light of those future blessings. To even, in appropriate fear of God, live now in light of those curses. So one preacher I know preached a sermon on this text and referred to the Beatitudes as bombshells that just shatters notions of life in the kingdom in that original setting. And as we begin to even in some ways conclude our time, I want us to do so by meditating on a couple things if we bring the few elements of these first two sections of the sermon together to know something about what Jesus expects of his followers. What this discourse on discipleship is all about. And I want you to see, first of all, he says that following Jesus means a dependent way of living. Following Jesus means a dependent way of living. Because what is, if you look at the Beatitudes again, these blessings again, what is the unifying reality in every one of those blessings? You're poor, you're hungry, you're weeping, you're hated. You depend on God alone for mercy, for the world gives you nothing. You're dependent. But on the flip side, with the curses... You have all the wealth, all the food, all the fun, and all the love. What need do you have for the Lord? It's all here now. And it's a great lie of Satan, isn't it, to say it's your best life now? No, in Christ it's a good life now, but the best life is yet to come. (laughs) Have you ever wondered why throughout church history... The gospel explodes and the kingdom advances and the church is always built in those areas that are experiencing the most hardship and persecution. They may be in a way that we don't always experience here in the West. They know the need they have of a king. Could it be that so many in our culture don't come to Christ because they are so rich? Because they are so satisfied in this world? And maybe that's even you in here this morning. Maybe you do find unending pleasures and delight in this world. So much so that you say, what's the point of a Savior? This life is great. The Bible is wanting you to know this life is but a momentary fleeting breath in light of eternity. And so we're to live dependent upon God. How does that dependence even show up for us? Who are, by the world's standards, rich? We have food. We have joys and delight. No one in this culture currently is really hating us that much. Can we not also show our dependence upon God's promises when we go through seasons of hardship, affliction, and suffering, trusting that he's with us, indeed near unto us, using that suffering for good, dependence upon God's power as we commit ourselves to his word, to his church, reliance on the spirit. Following Jesus is about a dependent way of living. And secondly, following Jesus is about an expectant way of living. You see it, don't you? You're blessed now in light of what the future has for you. You're blessed now because of what God has promised to give you for all eternity. You know, there's a story in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's called The Man with the Muckrake. And it's this idea of of a man who's in something like a stable, and he's just raking all of this muck, this dirt and filth unto himself, always keeping his glance down there when all the while there's this halo of gold above his head if he would only but just look up. Sometimes even in our life, is it not true, we become so fixated on the busyness of life and the cares and the responsibilities of this life that we can never look up to the coming kingdom and long for the coming king's return. He says his citizens, his disciples are to live dependently and expectantly upon him as they live in light of 
his glorious and powerful kingdom. I've had this cast on my hand for the last six weeks. I broke a few bones in my wrist about six weeks ago uh, playing soccer. And in ways I didn't expect six weeks ago, this has totally changed my life. I am now dependent on my left hand in ways I've never been before. March 30th is circled on my calendar in a way it never would have been otherwise. (laughs) Because this cast is coming off, Lord willing, on Thursday. And in this week, in study of this text, and my ongoing frank frustration with this hard thing over my right hand, I thought of it as a parable of sorts, in a good way, For when Christ comes, everything changes. You're dependent upon him in a way you never realized you were. You expect for him. You long for him. Cry out for him in a way you never did otherwise. Because what we need to see even within this sermon, within these first sections of blessings and curses, how in fact they do center on Jesus Christ, don't they? Uh, Look again at verse 22. He says, you're going to be hated. They're going to persecute you. They're going to revile you. Why? On account of the Son of Man. This is the difference between those that are in the kingdom and those that are not. Have they heard Christ's call of grace and come to him in faith? So the blessings center on Christ as he is our redeemer. The uh, the curses center on Christ as he is our judge. For understand that Jesus was cursed so that you might be blessed. Jesus was made poor, so that you might receive his eternal riches. Jesus went hungry, so that you might be satisfied forever in him. Jesus wept, didn't he? So that you might leap for joy in his kingdom. He was reviled, persecuted, shamed, broken, bloody, beaten, bruised, and crucified so that we might not be so cursed by the judgment that we deserve. So in this moment, there on that plain, the sermon on the plain is being given, Luke is very clear unto us that there are two crowds of people hearing this sermon. There was the great multitude of people who, as the gospel bears out, were only interested in Jesus insofar as he did what they demanded and what they wanted. But they're going to fade away as the story continues. Then there's the group of disciples that he initially addresses, that he's called to himself for his glory and their good. And I wonder which group you might be in this morning. Are you in the group that loves the Lord insofar as he does what you demand and desire? Or are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who have heard his call, are heeding the curses but living in the knowledge of his blessings of the coming kingdom, living in light of that glorious day when Jesus returns and fulfills all these promises that he's made unto us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are God who is merciful and gracious unto us, that you are faithful and true, that you have given us your word that is full of your promises that we might be able to walk faithfully in this world. We thank you that you care for us, We do pray even now by the Spirit you would minister to us in specific ways and powerful ways that you would take my simple and often feeble words to do a mighty work among us that would bring you alone the honor and the glory. 
And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we do want to continue in worship in a few different ways, even now as we want to continue worshiping God by giving back to Him what He's given to us in the offering as the deacons come forward in just a second to take up the morning offering. In the offering plates will be some information about our church if you would like to know anything more about Redeemer or our denomination. Uh, we also would encourage you, if you're seated on the inside of the rows, to take the black registration pad that should be in front of you and give us a record of your attendance and just pass it down to the outer part of the row. And because our Lord has commanded us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we want now to uh, sing a psalm unto Him as we lift up our voices singing Psalm 71, verses 1 through 14, which is found in page 59 of the Trinity Psalter, Psalm 71, 1 through 14, and we'll sing it to the tune of Beneath the Cross of Jesus. <laughs> 